Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Justin Trudeau puts out a call for input on climate issues. The debate between environment and economy is becoming increasingly contentious and polarized. And I think we can all agree that it's unhelpful for polarized views to define the battleground of a debate. To adapt to major disruptions like climate change and seize new opportunities in emerging markets like clean tech, what we need to do is build common ground instead. The major conservative leadership contenders say they'll force an election right away. An October election within a year of the last one would would set Elections Canada back on its heels a bit too. And the Prime Minister tries to refocus the government's attention. It's no secret that the Prime Minister and his government have been more or less on the back foot for the past few months, responding with more or less success to events that were not on their agenda. It's Tuesday, March the 3rd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Mark. The Prime Minister is calling for input on climate issues. He says he wants to hear from everyone. Uh, what do you think about that? And, and is this part of him trying to hit the reset button now after a rough start to the year? This is such a difficult one to wade through because it was asking for input on climate change that has produced the polarized uh, yes-no atmosphere blockades Um Everybody has views on climate change, uh, some of it uh, immovable. So I'm less interested, and I, I, I was really kind of, uh, I had more questions, as they say, than answers when he asked for this input. What are you going to do with the input? How are you going to make the two different sides come to some kind of middle ground? Uh, because there are no shortage of opinions in Canada about climate change. Um, it's the getting it and doing something with it that's going to be the interesting part. Yeah. He and Christopher Freeland have been doing something also interesting that I would like to know more about. They have now compared this to free trade uh, and the whole idea of free trade in Canada. And you and I uh, remember those debates of the 1980s and the 1990s even. And... They're saying Canada used to be polarized on the idea of free trade, but it has come now to a consensus. So what happened back then that would... uh, I'm very curious about this comparison between free trade and climate change and why they think that works. I'm also interested uh, from the perspective that this prime minister uh, has talked a lot about listening and hearing other perspectives and, and trying to achieve consensus, but... On some issues, this one included, I think he is pretty strident about his beliefs. And um, and that's not a criticism. That's just the way things are sometimes in politics. So how do you balance those two things? You're, if, if a lot of people are telling you, uh, we want pipelines uh, and, and we're not concerned about, uh, mm-hmm. about uh, emissions targets, that, I, I don't see this government changing direction based on what they're hearing, right? Exactly. Yeah, he has said, um, you know, there. some of these matters are clearly settled, as you point out, in the Prime Minister's head. And I believe inside government, or inside his PMO, they believe that the election, while it was a minority, was a mandate to go on climate change. That two-thirds of Canadians, uh, in various ways, voted for some kind of climate change policy. Um 
again, the, he is he has been trying since he came to office to stake out a middle ground, and a middle ground is a good place. Media like being in the middle too. Um, I'm all in favor of the middle, but I just don't understand what the incentive is right now for either of the polarized extremes in this to get to the middle. I, I see it. Governing a country is very hard. Uh, governing a polarized country is even more difficult. And the Prime Minister is going to have to say a little bit more about what he does with all this input. One would assume we have a lot of input right now. The election um, opinions are all over the place. What he does with it is uh, a big mystery. All right, let's turn to the Conservative leadership race. And it's interesting to see if you go to Peter McKay's Twitter account... His pinned tweet, the one that automatically stays at the top of his feed, is a picture of him and the words October election. Uh, He's basically saying, and so are the other two perceived frontrunners in this race, Aaron O'Toole and Marilyn Gladue, that we need an election right away in this country. And Peter McKay is saying if he's elected leader, he's going to force one as early as as this fall. What do you think about that strategy? Well, that's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have that yeah, to look forward to. Barely over the last election, and uh, and we get a new one. You know what? It, it, it definitely reminds me of um, the Liberals when they went through their second leader after their defeat in 2006. And first it was Stéphane Dion, who was, you know, sort of muddling along, uh, defeated. And when Ignatieff came in, you'll remember he did a couple of times. He, uh, he called her... Uh, well, I can't say he, he he brought things right up to the edge and then didn't call an election. Uh, the difference, I think, between the Liberals back in uh, 2008 09 or so when they started getting in this mood is that the Conservatives have a lot of money to wage an election. Uh, it's not clear yet they could win, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, too. Winning a conservative leadership is a very different thing than winning a, an election. And is June, it, it's possible that uh, whoever wins the election could use the summer to build up a, you know, an election platform and, and go to the people. Is it worth annoying people for that? Do they have something they need to do? Do people want to toss Justin Trudeau out? Um as we know, a week these days is a lifetime in politics, and I take promises of things that would happen in October with somewhat of a grain of salt. Hmm. Meanwhile, may be, that may be wishful thinking. Yeah. I just frankly don't think we're. It's funny. I was going through um, Elections Canada report yesterday on turnout, and the, you know, quietly while all this other stuff has been going on, Elections Canada did its report on the last election and what it needs to do before the next one. And they said they need until the bare minimum April 2021 to get their act together for another election. So that's a, it's maybe a six-month difference, but certainly if what I read is correct, an October election within a year of the last one would, uh, would set Elections Canada back on its heels a bit too. Hmm. Now, that's not a reason not to have one, of course, if that's... No, definitely yeah. not. Bureaucracy and red tape is not a reason not yeah. to have an election. No. Um, all right. Uh, let's talk about Richard de Carry, who uh, is not in the Conservative leadership race. He did an interview uh, in which he says he doesn't know why. 
Uh, I know that this is probably not something that will uh, still be talked about by the time June rolls around, but um, but what do you make of the decision to exclude him and, and how it was handled? It's it, it, it does seem not very transparent, um, and I don't know that he has a big enough constituency to um, to make this a problem as the race goes on. But we do know that in the last leadership race that the kind of views that Mr. DeCary represents, um, you know, strong, pro-life, anti-abortion, um, very ultra-social conservative, that was a force in the last leadership campaign. And if they attach themselves to his grievances about being excluded... Uh, it could make it a problematic discussion for the party. I, I, um, again, it's early days. I think what this is the Conservative Party trying to exercise the ghosts of the last election, and maybe um, with with a little more magic than transparency. All right. And finally, Joe Clark has been uh, tapped to be a special envoy and is traveling in Africa and the Persian Gulf to try to win support for Canada's bid for a U.N. Security Council seat. Uh, Fascinating to see him brought in in this capacity. And uh, obviously, the big question is, will it have any impact? Because a lot of people view this as an uphill battle from the start. Yeah, it you know, um, Joe Clark is a fascinating person altogether. He just turned 80 last year. We are approaching, I believe, the anniversary of his defeat. Um, you know, um, and Pierre Trudeau, the current prime minister's son, uh, defeated him. Father, yep. Uh, sorry, father, yes, yep. has been... Um, uh, Joe Clark, since he retired from politics, I think he's the only person to have been conservative leader twice... Uh, since he, he kind of left active politics, has been very active in Africa. Uh, he's part of something called the Global Leadership Foundation. He, he does a lot of traveling and shuttling around the globe. Uh, he is an elder statesman. He has a very good reputation in African countries where he does spend a lot of time. And those votes, as we saw the Prime Minister there, uh, seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only a few weeks ago, the Prime Minister clearly believes that um, some goodwill and some votes from African countries uh, will help. And the, and Joe Clark uh, has done the work on the ground there, too. This is a very quiet development, interesting. I don't know that it's going to work. Um, Joe Clark, while he is a great statesman, um, I'm not sure that, that he has the, the, the clout and the heft to, to bring Canada over, but certainly it's an interesting development, especially over the long reach of history. Yeah. All right, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. I know people are concerned. I want to assure everyone that our health officials and professionals are working tirelessly to keep Canada and Canadians safe. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At National News Watch, Linda Silas argues we're failing to protect healthcare workers from the coronavirus. Silas writes, despite lessons from the SARS epidemic, the Canadian government seems content to wait for conclusive evidence on how the virus is transmitted before taking the necessary steps to protect frontline healthcare workers, notably the Public Health Agency of Canada, 
is failing to properly prepare frontline workers in acute care settings. History may repeat itself if the agency continues to provide weak leadership. At Policy Options, Andrew Parkin and Michael Adams consider the shifting lens through which Canadians see the Wet'suwet'en crisis. They write, One big change is the emergence of climate change as a major concern. The current conflict can be framed as being about whether the need to move fossil fuels to market should continue to trump all other concerns. A second change has to do with the journey toward reconciliation. Most Canadians now recognize the wrongs that Indigenous peoples have faced and support actions to redress them. In the Toronto Star, Brad Duguid argues it's time for all sides to put Indigenous kids first. Duguid writes, It is understandable that people inconvenienced by a demonstration would be angry. However, it is also important to recognize that Indigenous peoples have been remarkably patient as they have endured hundreds of years of abuse and discrimination at the hands of previous governments of all political stripes. We must ensure that not one more generation of young Indigenous people goes by without every opportunity to lead a healthy, happy, safe life. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in Halifax this morning. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer tells us, we can expect to see a lot of him in the coming days. Mark, it's no secret that the Prime Minister and his government have been more or less on the back foot for the past few months, responding with more or less success to events that were not on their agenda. The shooting down by the Iranians of an airliner, the coronavirus outbreak, the tech mines decision not to invest in a new oil sands mine. So this week, the Prime Minister is trying to get back on agenda, speaking at a Miners and Prospectors conference yesterday in Toronto, and this morning he will start today making an announcement in Halifax. You can expect his focus uh, over the next few days to be on the ever-important middle class, reconciling the environment and the economy, and of course, Mark, laying the groundwork for the upcoming federal budget expected in just a matter of a few weeks. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan and Small Business Minister Mary Ng will take part in the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada 2020 Convention in Toronto. Minister of Labour Philomena Tassi will announce FedNor funding in Capus Casing, Ontario. Health Minister Patty Haidu will make an announcement in Thunder Bay, Ontario. National Revenue Minister Diane Le Boutelier will make announcements in Rivière-du-Loup and Matin, Quebec. Minister of Middle Class Prosperity Mona Fortier will hold a roundtable discussion hosted by the Surrey Board of Trade in Surrey, British Columbia. And Minister of Seniors Deb Schulte will make an announcement in Gibsons, B.C. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, March the 3rd. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.